Good morning. I want to start today by inviting you to think about a ritual that many of us uh, get to go through, uh, especially as we move into the summer. Uh, this is the ritual that we go through as we get ready to travel. Maybe some of you have traveled recently. Maybe you traveled uh, this weekend uh, to be here for Mother's Day weekend. Maybe uh, you're planning on traveling some point soon. Maybe you're going to be going somewhere this summer. Uh, and you're going to be traveling. And I'd like you to think about and maybe start getting ready for, as you think about traveling, the process that we all go through, which is packing. Packing, which is always a fun and fascinating experience uh, in any group as you try to do that together. Uh, I know it is for our family. Um, uh, some of you might be like my wife and that you are organized and we need people like you. Uh, it's especially important in Mother's Day for today for me to say that, if I'm using her as an example in any way, that uh, we need people like this. But you're list people when it comes to packing, right? Because you know of all the different things that have to happen, and so there's lists for you, and there's lists for uh, the children, and there's lists for your spouse, and you cross things off the list, and you make sure everything's right, and that the essential things are there. And that's the big part of packing, right? You gotta determine what is essential. What do we absolutely take on this trip? And then what are the things that are good but we just maybe don't need to include, right? That's always the, the issue with packing. My way of packing is different than my wife's. I sort of occurs to me about 10 minutes before I leave that I'm traveling, and so I sort of wander around my bedroom, and if things strike me as seeming important, I put them in the suitcase, right? And that has pluses and minuses to it. Uh, uh, the minuses might seem obvious. You don't get everything done. I've had to look for toothbrushes in fascinating parts of the world uh, because I didn't think to bring it. The positive, though, is, is that unpacking is such an adventure. <laughs> it's so boring when you've made a list and you know what's already in there. It's fun when you didn't and you open your suitcase and you shock yourself of going, oh, cool, I remembered to bring that. That's awesome, right? Um, and so th there's pluses and minuses both ways. A number of years ago, we were traveling, and I don't remember where we were going. It was a short trip, but we were flying on uh, an airplane, and for the first time, uh, our oldest daughter, Miriam, asked if she could pack her carry-on bag, and Beth said yes. So she gave Miriam what her carry-on uh, suitcase was going to be and what worked on the plane, and she gave Miriam a list, and, and for Miriam, lists are a good thing, and they're comforting things, and so she kind of worked through the list, and her mom and her are very similar in that. But we are also a family with not just one, but two children. And, and I don't know about your family and how it works, but justice is a very big thing uh, in our family. What happens for one needs to happen for the others. And justice normally starts with the phrase, it's not fair. Okay? It's not fair is used quite commonly in our household. It's not fair that mommy and daddy get to stay up late later than we do. It's not fair that my friend's got a new phone and I don't get one. It's not fair that my older sister gets to pack her suitcase for the trip and I don't either. And so Beth, in all of her wisdom, said in response to that, okay, well, you both can do it. Now, Again, she is a wonderful mother and full of wisdom, but this is where I started feeling some anxiety because Hannah's too much like me, right? And, and so it's like, uh, this may not be a good idea to do, but we're justice-oriented people and we love that, and so in, we let them both do it. 
About half an hour we were supposed to leave. Uh, we called both girls to come downstairs so that we could make sure everything was in the suitcase and it was good to go. Marion comes downstairs first. She has the suitcase that's right. She has her list. Beth goes through the list. Marion can tell you where everything is and it's folded up right and everything else. And then we call Hannah down the steps. And the first sign that we had a problem was that we actually heard Hannah's bag before we saw it. And the th sound we heard was metal clanking together, which was not on the list uh, anywhere. And then Hannah emerges with her bag that she, while being upstairs, had decided that the suitcase we had given her just simply wasn't big enough for everything that was essential in bringing. And so she had gone and found a duffel bag that was like twice the size that she is and that she had started loading stuff into it. She struggles, comes down the steps with it, she puts it down. My anxiety level is going up because I'm watching the clock at this point. And Beth, again, beautiful, wonderful, remaining calm. It's like, okay, Hannah, is everything in here only the stuff we need, we absolutely need? Um, yes, did you follow the list? Well, the list sort of became more of a list of suggestions of what you might want to take. Uh, some things we took away, some things we added to, and so we decided to just open the bag and look. Open, zipped up, open the bag. First thing to come out is Hannah's soccer trophy that she had just gotten. Um, and again, one of those things you look at and say, okay, it's a, it's a great trophy, like this big. Uh, is this necessary over the next few days? Yes. Okay. Why? Because I love soccer and I love my friends on the team and I don't want to miss them. Okay. Let's put that aside then uh, because she pulled out kingdom values, which always confuses us when, we, when that happens. And then, uh, and then next came out were some medals that she had won that you put around your neck, like ribbon and medals for ballet. That was what the trophy was clinging against. Uh, was this necessary? Absolutely, because we also love ballet and we love our friends in there. And then the next thing that came out were several framed pictures that she had pulled off shelves in our house uh, or even off walls. There was a framed picture of our dog, Kimba. There were framed pictures of various friends and family members, and we were said, again, is this necessary? Yes, I'm going to miss Kimba over the few days. Uh, we were able to agree on the fact that she didn't need photos of the family to go because we were traveling with her, and therefore she wasn't going to miss us. And somehow, Beth did this amazing job of negotiating it down to something that would fit back into the suitcase that we knew we could get on a plane. This is traveling, this is packing. It's the idea of what is actually essential and then what are the good things that are great that you can just say, we don't need to take that with us right now. It's a process we all have to go through and it's that idea, that image that I would like for you to have in your mind today as we read Romans chapter three. Because in this chapter, what Paul is beginning to do is he's beginning to build the foundations of what Christianity is. In this new era where there is Jewish and Gentile converts, as we see in the church in Rome, something that is different, that is, that is uh, creative, that this Holy Spirit is doing this new thing. And Paul is essentially writing this book of Romans. And here in chapter 3, he's making clear what needs to be in the suitcase. What is absolutely essential that we need to see in here? And then what might be some other things or traditions or, or stuff we can bring with us that maybe worked for us in the past, maybe they were good, but we can set them aside now. These don't need to come on the journey with us anymore. They don't need to be in the suitcase. 
We saw this uh, for the last few weeks. In chapter 1, two weeks ago, as we started this series, we said that the book of Romans is a completely unique book in the Bible because it is the only book that is written by Paul that is written to a church that he didn't found. All the other books that he wrote in the Bible, he's writing to churches where he knew people there. He had founded them. The church in Rome he had never been to before. So we're studying this book because it really lays out a lot of the foundations of faith because he's not taking anything for granted that they know something. So he starts with the basic building blocks. If these are questions you and I have about faith, Paul is going to answer them in the book of Rome. But as we move forward, he's going to build some of the most wondrous theological ideas of what living as a follower of Jesus can look like. This should engage us all. We saw last week in chapter 2 as this started that some of what Paul said needs to be in the suitcase is this idea of self-reflection. He said that it's possible for any of us to look at this world and see what's wrong with it and know who's to blame, right? We see that in our culture today kind of on steroids, right? Through social media, through 24-hour news, through what's going on in our world, we are constantly able to post things and comment on things that look at what's wrong in the world and tell everyone else who we think is to blame. And rarely is it people who are like us or vote like us. It's the people who are different on the other side who are always the problem with what's going on. And Paul says that this is key to human nature, and he says last week that the first thing as followers of Jesus that needs to be unique for us is that we examine with self-reflection and listen to others who might say, are you contributing to some of what's wrong, rather than let's start with how everyone else is the problem. Today we're looking at Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. And again, we're going to see some very basic, important, foundational stuff Paul is going to say, this needs to be in the suitcase. It cannot be left behind in the new thing that God is doing. So we're going to bring the scripture passage up here, Romans 3, starting in verse 21. He writes this. He says, But now, apart from law, the righteousness of God has been disclosed and is attested by the law and the prophets. The righteousness of of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by His grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a sacrifice of atonement by his blood, effective through faith. He did this to show his righteousness, because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the sins previously committed. It was to prove at the present time that he himself is righteous, and that he justifies the one who has faith in Jesus. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You pray with me. Lord, we ask today that no matter who we are or how how we walk in here, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us and, and impact our lives for your glory so that we might come most fully alive. We pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I do realize that there might be a moment right now when some of you are like, come on, man. We're here for Mother's Day. It's kind of a celebration. Uh, Maybe you brought some people for Mother's Day and you're like, seriously, this is what we're going with? Blood sacrifice and atonement and uh, sin and justification. Uh, Could we not have found something that was a little more appropriate for the day, something a little more positive, a little more upbeat, a little happier, a little more loving? Um, Is this really where we needed to go? And I get it. I get it that in our culture today, very few of us hear sacrifice of atonement and go, yes. I cannot wait to talk about this. This is going to be uplifting. Let's go. 
But while we may not hear it that way, I think the Apostle Paul would have known that some people of the church in Rome would have heard it as a celebration of good news. Remember the church in Rome had both Jewish converts to Christianity, but also Gentile converts to Christianity. And for people who had come from the Jewish faith, they would have understand that this talk of atonement and sacrifice of atonement is not something that's supposed to make you feel bad or guilty. It's not supposed to get you down or to kind of make you feel like you just have to flail yourself. That this is, in the end, a celebration of good news. And that the Gentile converts to Christianity, maybe like you and I, wouldn't have known much of a background of this and needed to understand that it's got to be in the suitcase. This idea of atonement has to be in the suitcase. Now, we're going to try something experimental today, and you can pray for Derek today as he's running the the, uh, pro presenter, because we have sort of a Letterman top 10 list that we're going to run through here, because sometimes when you're getting a lot of information, especially from the book of Leviticus, where we're going to go for a minute, uh, it's helpful to see things as well as hear them, but Derek's going to have to follow my wandering to know when to bring one of them up, and... Um, God bless you, brother. Uh, this is where Derek's going, I wish he had a manuscript, right? Uh, but we're going we're gonna to get there um, in, in some form or fashion. We're going to bring the first one up uh, now. And that this idea that Paul writes about is that there is a sacrifice of atonement. And what does that mean? It's important we define this. Atonement in the dictionary is reparation for an offense or injury. We have to make something right where there is an offense or where there is injury. And this is critical for us to understand what Paul's saying has to be in the suitcase and it has to be part of our lives if we're to celebrate good news. And that is this. There is sort of a popular thing in our world today that kind of says, listen, God is love and God is a loving God. And if God is a loving God, why do we need all this judgment and all this anger? Why do we need all of this? Can't God just say, let's just love each other and everyone get along? Wouldn't it be great, right? Like I'm a pretty good person and certainly God looks at me and says, you're not perfect and I know you're not perfect, but you're better than a lot of people. You're certainly better than some of the people around you and you can pick and pull those people out. You ignore the people that make you feel intimidated. You go to the ones that you know you're better than and say, well, I'm better than him and I'm better than her. And so that kind of makes it okay. And if God's really loving, why all of this atonement and sacrifice and anger, why can't God just sort of push all that away and go, don't worry about it. Let's just love each other. And that's a good question because it does feel a little like it's at odds with each other. And it's really important to understand the answer. And the answer is this, is that while that sounds good, right? I just, God's love and God ignores the bad stuff and focuses on the good and makes everything okay magically and sort of sweeps the bad under the carpet. It doesn't take the problems and pain of the world seriously enough. And if you stop and really think about it for more than two minutes, You can't truly worship a God who takes sin and injustice and brokenness and just sweeps it in the carpet out of the name of a weak love. Your selfishness and self-centeredness hurts people. So does mine. Every day. Maybe not in huge ways, but in real ways that create an impact. Your short-temperedness can. Our greed does. Our negligence of many different things in the world, in the environment, cause this to happen all the time. And we live in a world where there is great injustice. Many of you have experienced that in different ways, a pain that has been inflicted on you. We know that around the world there is dehumanizing acts of violence that takes place every day. And God loves this world too much and loves you too much to go forget about it. 
It's okay. Don't worry about it. Just love each other through it. God loves the world too much for that. Because as Miroslav Volf says, and we talked about this a couple of months ago, is that if we look at people who have experienced great injustice and say to them, just love people through it and don't worry about it, that is not love. It takes victims of of injustice and makes them victims again by saying it's not that big of a deal what you went through. So atonement must be made, not because God's not loving in that moment, because that God's demanding of things being made right is the the embodiment of love, because he loves this world too much just to kind of turn a blind eye. So there must be atonement, reparation of some kind or another. And that leaves you and I at the point of going, okay, if God doesn't sweep it under the carpet, then the million dollar question is, how good do I need to be? How good is good enough? How many check marks do I need in the positive column to negate out the little things that I do, but I do them? The good things that I fail to do and the bad things that I continue to do no matter how many times I look at people and go, this time I mean it, it won't happen again. How good is good enough? Paul knew that the Jewish converts to Christianity celebrated God's response to this. How does atonement take place? The Day of Atonement was known as Yom Kippur. This is one of seven celebrations in the Old Testament, one of the seven great celebrations. It's talked about in Leviticus chapter 16. And on the Day of Atonement, the the Jewish name for that is Yom Kippur, which is a day still celebrated by people of the Jewish faith around the world today. Yom Kippur is the Day of Atonement. It's the second of these seven major festivals. The first was 10 days beforehand called Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah was the first of the seven festivals, and the two of them were connected. Rosh Hashanah is the new year, like New Year's Day, okay? Just so that it's kind of warm in here, and I want to make sure you're awake and with me and tracking, I want you to say it after me. Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah. Hashanah. And second, Yom Kippur. Okay. Good. So Rosh Hashanah is the new year. Yom Kippur happens 10 days later. It's the second of the festivals, the Day of Atonement. Now, when you and I think of the new year, we think of New Year's Eve and New Year's parties and celebration and uh, rocking New Year's Eve that never seemed that rocking, but they're supposed to be because that's the name of it. But it's the celebration time. Rosh Hashanah was not a celebration. The new year was very different. Rosh Hashanah started a 10-day period that ends with Yom Kippur. These two festivals are linked. Rosh Hashanah was a time that started 10 days of confession and reflection. The people would stop, stop their work, stop activities, and they would think, what are the good things that I have failed to do? Where have I hurt people? Where have I continued to do that which I know is wrong? Maybe some other people help me who love me enough to tell me the truth about where my sin and brokenness is. Where's the brokenness in our culture? Where's the brokenness in our society? Where's the brokenness in our world? Where's the brokenness in our neighborhoods? Where are the systematic places of injustice? And we sit for 10 days lifting those up in confession to God. And after 10 days of doing this comes the day of Yom Kippur where all the people would then are welcome to gather in Jerusalem around the temple. And Yom Kippur started this way. It started with the chief priest. 
the chief priest would bathe in holy water to start the day. And there's nothing about baptism in there, but it's cool to see as followers of Jesus where baptism, which we got to celebrate at the church uh, picnic with Rob last weekend, where baptism begins, this idea of water washing us clean. We see this hundreds of years before with the chief priest because he would bathe in this holy water that was just for him to cleanse him of his sin and his impurities. And when he would come out of the water, there was a special holy uh, garment that he was to wear underneath his clothes, only on this one day of Yom Kippur. After coming out of uh, this private area as he was dressed in the ceremonial dress, he would appear before all of the people at the temple. All of the people were gathered around. And again, for 10 days, they've been sitting in this solemn state, confessing their sins and the brokenness of their world that they saw. And after 10 days, the chief priest would appear and they would all see the chief priest there and the chief priest would have three animals with him. The first was a bull and the second two were goats. The bull the chief priest would have with him would be the first animal to be sacrificed, a sacrifice of atonement, where the, the bull was sacrificed for the sins of both the chief priest but also of the chief priest's family, of this household. This made the chief priest clean to come into the presence of God. The next goat would be sacrificed, uh, and that was a blood sacrifice of atonement. I'm sure the bull and the goat were going, I don't know what we did in this whole thing, but the goat was, again, a costly sacrifice for the sins of the people. Someone had to pay to make things right. And then last comes the second goat, the one that's still alive. This last goat would appear then, and all the people were watching this, before the chief priest, and they would have handlers who would hold this goat still, and the chief priest would then take his hands and place it on the head of this last living goat, and would then publicly confess the sins of the people and of the nation over this goat. Everything that had been mentioned and confessed over the 10 days would that point be kind of placed onto this goat. And then the goat after this prayer would be led by a handler through the temple courtyards, through the people who are still silent and solemn, out of the city of Jerusalem and would be taken far away out into the wilderness where it was let go free. This goat became known as the scapegoat. This is where we get this term that we still use today. When something goes wrong, who's the scapegoat? Who are we blaming for what happened? This goat is where the term comes from. The scapegoat would have been led outside of Jerusalem, away from the people, and let go, and you had to take it a long way away because this is now a radioactive goat that you do not want wandering back into the city two days later, right? Like you want this thing gone forever, away from everybody. They would take it off, and it was gone. And when the scapegoat would leave, after these 10 days, at the end of Yom Kippur, the people would then celebrate. Celebrate. Celebrate in a way that is deeper and more meaningful than any New Year's party you have ever been to before because it was so much more purposeful. It is a celebration of people who know that God sees them in their world as they are and demands because he loves this world so much that things be made right, that atonement be paid, and to realize that that atonement is taken from you and placed on to another and sent away forever and that you are washed clean and when people know that freedom they celebrate
That's what Paul is writing about here. And the, the parallels with Christianity are clear. That we too are people that have to ask the question, if God really loves this world enough to want it to be right, how good is good enough? How good do you need to be if God cares enough about this world to demand that justice roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream? How good is good enough? And if you sit in the hard part of that question and realize how in chains we are to be good enough, we have to look outside of ourselves for an answer. And we don't have 10 days of reflection and we don't have Yom Kippur anymore and we don't have a bull and we don't have two goats, but we do have the Messiah, Jesus, that God has sent into the world, who, as Isaiah says, was bruised and pierced for our transgressions. And upon him, Isaiah writes, is placed the iniquity of us all. This is not just poetic language that Isaiah is using. He's using the imagery of Yom Kippur, of the scapegoat, and saying that just as we read about in Leviticus 16, that God has provided the one who stands in front of the temple, in front of all of the people, bloodied and bruised, and that as he is led away, led through the crowds, led outside of the city, just as the scapegoat was, that he carries a cross with him and that he was crucified outside of the walls of old Jerusalem for everyone to see. And that upon him was placed the sin and the brokenness of all creation. But Paul says that this is not where the story ends, but that the story explodes on Easter morning to say that life and love and justice will always triumph in the end. And that we are a people, therefore, who live in hope. Hope because of how much God's love changes and frees us from our sin and our transgressions and our iniquity. Paul is not saying that this is bad news to make us feel down, that this ought to make us celebrate. This is what our faith in the end must be in the suitcase. It must be there. That's essential. Because if you stop and think about it, friends, as we close, if you stop and think about it, every religion and every spirituality, even the kind of, I'm spiritual but not religious because no religion can contain God. Every kind of spiritual philosophy and religion is based on a very certain set of principles, including Christianity. And that is this. It says that you and this world are not perfect. There's no such thing as a religion that says you are perfect because A, you know it's not true and so do I. And if you don't know that, just ask someone near you. You're not perfect and neither is this world. And what every religion and spirituality says is, is that this is where we are and this is what things would make things right. And here's what you've got to do to bridge the gap between here and here. You've got to follow the eightfold path to enlightenment. You have to pray a certain number of times. You have to meditate. You have to avoid certain foods. You have to become more mindful. You have to practice these certain things. And as you do it, you get closer and closer to the ideal. And this is where Christianity, what Paul is saying, completely moves in a different direction. Because it says that there's no good answer to how good is good enough. 
that Christianity at its core is not about rules and religious doctrine, that what Paul is saying is that at its core, Christianity is not a story about what we do. It is a celebration of what Jesus has done. And when we hold on to that and claim that through faith, we should celebrate, worship, praise God. And so that is how we will close. You are more loved than you can possibly imagine. And God through for Christ, has set us free. Let us stand and sing and praise God.